The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Wendy, we're talking to Denise Donlin today. I don't even know where to start with this one. Well, we can probably start just by saying she's the busiest woman in showbiz. Um, it will kind of take us forever to pin her down, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's always been that way. Let's just do a quick and cursory run through of Denise's okay. many accomplishments. Yeah, okay, you so start. I will start. Well, I mean, this isn't even the beginning, but most people our age will know her from, uh, and people younger than us as well and older, will know her from much music. That's She was a host. She was producer of the new music. She ultimately, to make a long story short, became vice president of the whole enchilada. Yeah, and then she became president of Sony Music Canada. She furthered and nurtured the careers of people like Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen, Celine Dion, all kinds of famous She's married to Maria McLaughlin. So that, that's an accomplishment. <laughs> well, I think it is for him. <laughs> Denise was also head of CBC English Radio. We all have lots of thoughts about that. Yeah, I probably have a few thoughts. But back to much music. She's she's worked with everyone. Moses Neimer, of course, Bill Clinton, uh, Conrad Black. As you can imagine, she's she's dealt with more than her share of bullies and blowhards. We've known a few. Not that they're necessarily the bullies and blowhards in question, but of course, uh, the uh, industry is rampant with them. So more on that as well. Along the way, Denise has been given, okay, the Order of Canada, two Gemini Awards, a Juno Award, the Peter Zowski Literacy Award, the Rosalie Trailblazer Award. I got that one. A member of the Canadian Broadcasters Hall of Fame, a three-time Broadcast Executive of the Year winner. She was shortlisted for a sainthood, and she is the true queen of Westeros. So the Nobel Prize, I think she gave back. She Nobel gave it back Prize. because someone <laughs> needed it more. <laughs> so there's way more, obviously. We've barely scratched the surface. To do that, you can read her book. It's called Fearless as Possible Under the Circumstances. She stole that line from someone. We've heard that a few times. Or you can just sit in with us now and welcome. Hi, Denise. Oh, it's so nice to see you. <laughs> Hi. Wow. That high praise indeed from you women of ill repute. Thanks so much. What a lovely introduction. Was I recorded? I'd like to use it uh, somewhere. Yeah, it is. It's recorded. <laughs> it's yours. And like I said, it only scratched the surface. And I want to add something to that. You're one of the very few people in the broadcast industry, to the best of my knowledge, has come out unscathed. I don't, I've never heard anybody say anything truly bad, not even a little bad. I mean, you, you're loved. So far, so, so far. far. I'm sure there's something going to be under a rock somewhere. Well, there was that on air. You can tell us all the dirty secrets, you know, but it's true. I mean, you are, you, you have done so much and you have run some really big things. Uh, you've been a rock and roll person back before there were cameras. Thank God. I want to ask you about that. But but it's, uh, but yeah, you've, you've done wonderful things. No, oh, well, thank you. Well, it's been fun. And you know what? I've just been really lucky. I mean, yeah, lucky, hard work, but also, you know, just opportunities have been uh, presented at the right time, I think. And, you know, then you throw yourself in there with your imposter syndrome, you know, bubbling all over the place and just try to do the best you can do in sometimes pretty fraught environments. So, you know, but I always think, you know, you have to lead with kindness, you have to lead with empathy. And, you know, if there was more women leading, maybe we wouldn't be in the uh, the worldwide chaos that we happen to be at the moment. Now, you see, I'm, I take exception to that. Um, 
you know, if women ran the world, it would be a better place. I don't know if that's necessarily true. Um, you know, we might bring a different. Have you met me and Maureen? <laughs> <laughs> you might, we might bring a different attitude towards that. But I mean, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I'm not absolutely sure that, I mean, it, I think everything should be as equal as possible, that everybody should have an opportunity. But I don't know if, if the most successful women are necessarily the kindest. Well, I think that, you know, I think that's going to take at least a generation. I mean, a, a lot of times, I mean, first of all, we haven't been tested to that level because, I mean, if you look at the numbers for women in any kind of power at, you know, 20% at TSX boards, like 5% CEOs, um, like, you know, the numbers in politics, etc. It's just, unfortunately, to be able to thrive in some of those worlds, you often have to adopt what we would consider, you know, male traits, I guess, right? You, you don't show your vulnerability, you, you know, you lead more authoritatively than more teamworky. And it's never been my way. And, you know, the other thing too, is it's, there are so few numbers that it's really rarefied air up there. And sometimes the women that do get there are so, they're running so hard to stay in place, or at least improve things, that maybe they don't think there's enough air to share. And I think that once we get to those magic, well, they always say the number's 33% anywhere, that you can start, you know, really helping and mentoring people and, um, and changing the environment, changing the culture, because the culture of, you know, greed and corruption and environmental degradation is just, just not doing anybody any favors at the moment. So, yeah, let us have a turn. <laughs> I don't know. I, I tried to talk to my daughter about the, the environment and AI and all of these things that are threatening us uh, these days. And they're they're huge. And she's 25. And so I was assuming that she would sort of say, yeah, we're screwed. Like we're young people, we're screwed. But instead, she's she's very much like you in that uh, and maybe not like Maureen and maybe not like so much like me. And, and, and in the sense that she thinks that, that women still have an, an extremely hard time in terms of, in terms of getting ahead. So I don't know. I, I'd like to think that that's all changed and, uh, or changing. Um, but maybe it's not, but, but I wonder just back to the original idea of it, cause you are kind of a rock and roll chick in spite of everything. Um, yeah, like, could people still be, could they still play? Can they still, like you talk about smoking and drinking and whatever in your 20s and 30s. And I looked at uh, Taylor Swift had this big concert on and like, can she still like cut loose? Well, I mean, luckily, I, you know, sort of came up as it were in a time where social media didn't really exist, you know, so, so I think I got away with a lot. Smoking and drinking, I mean, you know, there was the White Snake slided in tour of Europe 1984. I'm sure if there were pictures that abounded from that tour, people might think about me a little bit differently. But you know, I'm open about that stuff. Those, those were the days, those were the times. But I think that maybe your daughter at 25, you know, my son's 31 now. And I remember going to high school graduations and, you know, the parents were, you know, more like with their daughters, you can do anything, you can be it all, you can have it all. 
and we're very sort of uh, boostery, which is good, except for sometimes those the the girls that well, I saw a couple that could sing, and they really couldn't. You know, they they couldn't have that part anyway. And one day someone will tell them. <laughs> but I think that encouraging women, you know, and young girls especially. I think it will take another gen- generation and I think that they will not be hobbled by the imposter syndrome and they will, you know, rise up and stand up and just not take it anymore and do what they want to do and more power to them. I want to go back to the White Snake tour for a second because I know that. <laughs> <laughs> Who does Who doesn't? it? Right. But I know I read that you objected to the backstage laminates. You wouldn't wear one. The, the security passes because of that had a basically a woman's moistened lips as the, and you said no. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, it, it might've been a banana. I wasn't really sure what it was. <laughs> Either way, you said no. And I think about this because we're about the same age and, and we've dealt with many of the same people. And, you know, I, I remember in the early days, I was uh, applauded for having the right attitude, right? According to the man. Um, and you one of the guys, one of the guys, and I know that you have been as well, and yet you would draw the line in, in places where I was too intimidated to. Sometimes. You know what, Maureen? I think even that example, I think that I could have drawn the line a lot more often, and I think that I could have been more aware of the sexism that was coming at you, but I wasn't because I was trying so hard just to, you know, just succeed as me. I mean, that story was, so I'll describe the backstage laminate. It was the White Snake slided in tour, and mine, of course, said all access, which is also, so, so many things are single on Tondras, right? Anyway, we were at the beginning of our European tour, and I went backstage at the stage door to get our laminates for the band. I was touring with a band called Headpins at the time. We were their support act. And I look, and there's Jimmy Ayers. He was the White Snake tour manager. He's a tall, thin guy with very long hair smoking at the back. And he said he handed me the laminates, and it was like these moistened red lips with a with something going in the mouth. Like I wasn't sure what it was, but it was called white snake. Anyway, he handed it to me and I looked at it and I was like, I'm not wearing that. That objectifies women. And I remember him just sort of drawing on a cigarette. Like <sighs> he said, well, I guess you're not getting backstage. And so now you're darling. So, and for me, the big feminist compromise was like, Oh, for God's sakes. And I, I put it on the inside of my jacket you know, so that I wouldn't have to wear it. But <laughs> that says everything. Yeah. Is that like, what, what happens now? I, I'm not sure it's better. Is it better? I mean, sure. You could call that out, but is it better in terms of overall sexism out there? I think people are more guarded for sure. We've certainly, you know, seen enough me too, you know, movements, etc. And everything's changed. <laughs> not, not changed. <laughs> Well, but 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 the biggest artists in the world right now, the biggest tours mm-hmm. are women. I mean, Taylor just she's changing economies. Well, and she has that power. She's changing all kinds of things, re-recording her masters because she thought she was ripped off in terms of her management company or publishing company. Like, well done, my girl. Go for it. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I think in some ways the power balance has shifted. I mean, it comes down sadly to money, and right now the money is in the hands of the Beyonces and the Taylor Swifts, and more so than the White Snakes of the world. If even there aren't even any, I'm trying to think: is there a big 
rock band out there, maybe the 1975, but not not to the same degree that there were. Music's changed. Yeah, music's changed. It's still it's still run by men. You know, Live Nation's run by men, Canadians as a, as a rule, which is great. The you know the labels, the recording industry as a whole. I mean, people are trying the Junos. You know, the, the Canadian Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. They are trying really hard to change their culture and making sure that even in categories, women producers are encouraged and engineers and all the rest of that stuff. Because as little as you know, twenty years ago. I mean, you can think about the Lilith Fair. When you look at the little, what happened with Sarah, you know, the, the reigning top 20 in the charts, especially in Polestar, which says how much, how big the grosses are. I think there's two women in the top 20. And so it has shifted a little. It's got to shift a little lot more. I do think often, sadly, with any sort of change in movement, it's, uh, it's like two steps forward, one step back, and then two, and then hopefully we're still you know, moving forward, but we're not always, I mean, look what's happening in the States that lots of female women's rights and freedoms are being removed with a stroke of a pen. So I I want to stop talking about issues and start talking about the really important stuff, which is gossip. Um, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) She's a journalist, you know. (laughs) Maureen was sort of laughing because you're, I think if you include all the indices, it's uh, about 1100 pages. Your (laughs) (laughs) it's way too long i mean i pity anybody who's like you know grinding through my thoughts on the crtc hearings it's like oh for god's sakes (laughs) okay but i do want to ask you because i mean we all have so much in common but i do want to ask you about the cbc debacle you were shuffled out of your job and you were doing a great job Thank you. Are, are you over this? I mean, well, it take it's it it leaves a mark. Let's put it that way. It totally leaves a mark. Am I angry about it? Yeah, I'm still pissed because I think it was done for the wrong reasons. I mean, at the time, you know, we just as Wendy will remember really well, we'd just gone through a hundred and seventy-one million dollars shortfall. I was going coast to coast trying to save radio stations. Some of those little radio stations had like two staff members in it. And I know people will march on the street for for radio. So when Richard Sturzberg uh, was let go. I was called and asked to put my hat in the ring from the president's office because I had TV. I had old TV experience. And because we'd just gone through three years of me just, you know, trying so hard to support radio in a time of um, economic crisis, right? And radio had no commercials on it. So, it wasn't a revenue generator. So we had to figure that out. We had to switch to digital in many ways while we were downsizing. It was a very difficult time. And I knew that nobody, well, it was my conceit, that nobody at radio or nobody at the at the executive table would argue as hard for radio and, and support the journalists at radio as I would. So I thought about it for a couple of days and I thought, no. I'm not going to put my hat in the ring, but please, you know, find an amazing person and, um, and I will salute and we will go forth uh, together. But we didn't go forth together. So, yeah, I was upset. 
Now, I mean, I don't need to tell you this. You've got Pierre Poiliev who's saying, you know, let's defund the CBC. Uh, the the numbers, or at least for television, not for and a little bit for radio, but uh, particularly for television. Like, I agree with so much of what CBC does. And sp- I mean, like you, I have a, a colored history with the with the CBC, but I agree with so much of their approach. But it's not just me who gets hit with subsidizing the CBC. It's it's everybody. So I I have very very mixed feelings, and and I think you do too. Like you wrote about, will will the CBC ever be recreated if 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 it's if if it's destroyed? And 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 maybe it won't. And yet part of me is like like I, I hardly want to make posters for uh, Pierre Poiliev. But if you're if you're a public broadcaster, as you say, you've got to speak to the public. So. And not just to me, and not just to people who agree with me about about things. So I like is it is it do people still care about the CBC? Does anyone give a crap about it? They do care for uh, about it, and you know I can remember you know going across the country when you know those cuts were happening, and I was uh, you know protested in some of those smaller towns in Sudbury or Sydney, Nova Scotia, right? They. They, people came out with, you know, there's fire trucks and ambulances and, uh, we, you know, with their lights on and their horns on and, and, uh, people holding up posters like, don't cut the CBC. So yeah, I, I know people care. And I think principally, I mean, in the book I struggled with because I thought, oh, I'm expected to come up with what is the answer to the CBC. <laughs> And I struggle with that. <laughs> do, do you have the answer? Well, I th- I do think that, you know, making it um, uncommercial would be the right thing, but they have and give the money back to the private bar- the broadcasters. And it's a tiny envelope at this point uh, uh, anyway, you know, once they lost hockey, et cetera. But, you know, funding it properly. And as you know, uh, uh, you know, CBC is still in the bottom 33 percentile of publicly funded broadcasters around the world. And yet we still serve all the provinces and territories in eight Aboriginal language, in French and in English. It's like, it's it's a huge feat. And at the end of the day, when we look at, you know, the, the world out there in terms of media literacy, I mean, uh, you're fighting these corporations, well, CBC isn't, but I think pe- thinking people are, you know, looking at the Rupert Murdoch's of the world where Fox can own the public sentiment in America because people are watching that service and accepting it verbatim because they're the loudest, you know, pundits, the paid pundits mostly out there. So to not have a service that actually is working in support of the public versus the profit I think would be hurtful to who we are as Canadians and who we aspire to be and um, and negatively impacting our culture. I believe that in my bones. Even though we both have a lot of anger towards the CBC. Next. Well, I have a lot of anger towards one person, not, not the CBC. <laughs> because when, you know, that happened and I went up and cleared out my office and uh, and went to the cottage, you know, I got hundreds of emails and some of them from the the journalists I respected most. And that made me feel better. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's business. It's business. And they're looking at, you know, where can they cut? And it's, it's business. Could have been done better. Let me just say that. Well, (laughs) the women of ill repute, 
Okay, I'm going to steer the conversation back to gossipy stuff now. So when you were at Sony, you were, I mean, throughout your career, you've been involved with all sorts of people. I love maybe one of the best interviews I ever had, and I did a lot, was with Leonard Cohen. And I understand you had a, a bit of a, not a falling out, you had a contretemps that was resolved. A contretemps. Oui, c'est ça. A contretemps. <laughs> oui, oui. Can you, can you tell us about that? So... At the, when I joined Sony Music Canada, and Leonard was still signed to Canada, so he was sort of like my artist, which was awesome, because I, too, used to interview him at the New Music and Much Music in the olden days. But he'd been up on Mount Baldy for 10 years. He hadn't put a record out for 10 years. So he was going back into the studio, and we were very excited about what kind of product Leonard would uh, would bring. She said product like a record company president. And, you know, the stakes were very high because in some countries like, you know, Norway and Sweden, for example, you know, he'd outsell Michael Jackson. So it was a big deal. And I went down uh, to listen to the record, and that's a whole other story, the Leonard Cohen listening party sitting on the floor in a motel room. Anyway, uh, drinking too much wine. (laughs) So we put that record out. It did really well. And then because he was sort of back in the, the public eye again, Sony wanted to do what they call an essentials record. Now, this was a two CD set at the time. And it was like the most essential songs of Michael Jackson or Tony Bennett or Destiny's Child or whoever it was. And they did really well uh, when people really wanted to buy compilations in those days. Anyway, so Leonard wasn't pleased about doing a compilation record. And I said, don't worry, you know, here's a whack of cash. You know, you can remaster all this stuff. You can re-record stuff if you want. Like, let's make it so that you're the most proud of this record. So he agrees, and he goes into the studio with an amazing producer, Bob Ludwig, and then he sent me the track listing. And Marianne wasn't on the track listing, that huge song, Marianne. So I called up his manager, and I said, um, you know, there's a real problem here because Marianne's not on the track listing, and I sent the track listing out to International, and all the sales forecast had plummeted. They're like, we can't put out a record like this. It's not the essentials. There will be a laughing stock, et cetera. <laughs> Where's Marianne? Where's Marianne? <laughs> so I talked to Leonard about it, and he said, well, I like that song was so much better in memory than it was in actuality. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Yeah, yeah. I said, oh, all right. I said, but Leonard, you know, the, the, <laughs> your fans are going to go crazy. They're going to be really mad. Well, I'll ask the fans, he said. And he had a really great relationship. He would love to be online and uh, he would debate his fans and they would often just be him typing back. Anyway, he put, a, he put it out there and some of them agreed with him and some of them, you know, you know, against the evil record company trying to tell Leonard what to do. But by and large, people really wanted Marianne on that record. So I know this is a long story, but ultimately, uh, my boss at Sony Music International said, Denise, you know that contractually you can put Marianne on it and you don't need the artist's approval. And I was like, I hope it doesn't come to that. Anyway, it did come to that. And I had to tell him, you know, Leonard, I I don't need your approval. And then he... This phone call, literally, I was holding the phone like two feet away from my ear because he was so angry. And it wasn't just me. It was every publisher that done him wrong, every record company that, that didn't treat him seriously, no respect. And I'm like, Leonard, I've, uh, I've always, and I, you know, on and on and on. And then at the end of it, he said, Denise, if you go against my wishes, 
if you do what I expressly asked you not to do, I want you to know that you will forever hold a much smaller place in my heart. I know. I was like, (gasps) and I said, (laughs) Leonard, I'm sorry, but that's just a chance I'm going to have to take. I know. So I went home and I drank a huge glass of wine and felt terrible about it. And I called his manager and I said, that was the worst conversation I've ever had with an artist, but I have to go ahead and do it. And so she told him how upset I was. And then the next day he sent me the most beautiful email. It was actually, I think I still have it in my office somewhere. Cause it, it, hang on, hang on. Oh. <laughs> I do. As you know, you can't see this unless you're watching YouTube, but Denise is going to look for the email. Oh my God. No, but this is great. Look, oh my goodness. You framed it. You framed it. Because I found it again when I was writing the book. Do you want me to read it to you? It's very short. Yes, of course. He says, Dear Denise, Kelly passed your letter on to me. I hope you don't mind. Because I sent her a note. Also. Your place in my heart is as secure as ever. The conversation was just business. I kind of enjoyed it. I rarely get a chance to argue with anyone. And I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. And I sincerely apologize. I have to answer to my superiors just as you must answer to yours. So long, Marianne, nothing really hangs on this issue. These are all very tiny matters and have no weight at all in the butcher shop we call the world. All that matters here is the heart. So let's keep ours open. Your old friend, Leonard. It's fascinating. I know. And then Marianne went out. It sold like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yay, I made lots of money. You were right. <laughs> it's, it, it speaks to so much of, I don't know, I guess the underlying message in your book, which is, you know, your mom raised you to stand up for yourself and you, the world is your oyster and go out and, you know, make things better. But there's also a business sense. Like like I'm now doing this podcast with Maureen and we're like looking for more people to give us money for sponsors. And I'm like, oh my God, at CBC, I, I never, I never had to do that. Yeah, it's tough. I hate asking for money. But it's the, it's the real world. And w- when you were at Sony, when you were at CBC, when you were dealing with Leonard Cohen, it's it's always that, like, how how on earth do you ever find the line between doing the right thing and making enough to feed your kids and keep the job at Sony, like putting Marianne on the record? Yeah, I don't know. I think you make those decisions um, based on principle at the end of the day, you know, and I'm as big a excuse me, chicken shit as anybody else when it comes to standing up for stuff. But sometimes you just have to do it. And I remember there was this great quote, John Stewart. I love John Stewart. Who would know that we would get so much great information from our comedians? But he said, trying to remember it, if you don't stick to your values when they're being tested, they're not values, they're hobbies. And, you know, I've been in some situations where those kind of things, like putting Much Music put the first ever, uh, we were the first mainstream broadcaster to put a float in the Pride Parade. And people called me, they were, you know, it was before social media. And as soon as we put the Much Comes Out uh, logo on the air, and um, all the electric circus dancers were very excited about being on the float and we were figuring out a float. Then I started to get calls. People would call me and say, 
are you the dyke that's running much music? And how dare you teach our kids to be fags? And I know it, and it got, and they escalated. Like it wasn't just one or two, it was like a campaign. You know, I know where your kid goes to school. I know where you park your car. And so the day before we were supposed to be in the parade, I went up to see Ron Waters. I saw, I know where Moses would land on it because he was trying to, or he was launching Queer TV at that time. And I went up to see Ron Waters because the Chum family owned the stations and there was a lot of stations coming out of 299 Queen Street West. And I told him what was going and he said, Denise, I, we've got your back. You're doing the right thing. And I came down with just that, that piece of support, right? Came down those stairs thinking that I could strangle those homophobic troglodytes with my bare hands. It just gave me so much power and confidence. And then I talked to everybody, all the dancers on the float, told everybody what was going on and uh, not a single one pulled out. And, you know, I think that when you stand on a principle like that, it gives you power. And, you know, we that was an amazing day. We careened down Young Street with confetti and water cannons. And, you know, had we backed down, then hate would have won. And, you know, that day, love won. So when you're in situations like that, you really do have to have your, you know, walk in the snow, as it were. You have to come face to face with your own fear and your own values and principles. And then hopefully, maybe not that time, maybe the next time. You make a decision that you're proud of and that was the right one. How's Murray? <laughs> He's awesome. <laughs> Does he know that, uh, that that you're the big prize, as we said? Uh, <laughs> he's, he's about to go on tour as himself and then Lunch at Allen's, which if you've never seen Lunch at Allen's in concert, I urge you to go. They're doing a Christmas tour. It's Cindy Church and Mark Jordan and Ian Thomas and Murray. And I tell you. Oh, my God. Very funny people. Oh, my God. I swear you will come out two, levitating two feet off the ground. They're hilarious and beautiful. They're, and they're all hits that everyone's had on their own or with other uh, big stars. Um, it's a great tour. So he's good. He's still rocking. I read somewhere that yeah. you and Murray are like Canadian royalty. So you don't oh, look like Canadian royalty. I think that was <laughs> the, the, Kawartha, the Kawartha Weekly, I think that's what it was called. Yeah, on the cover of the Kawartha Weekly. The Kawartha, you're Canadian royalty. It's so Canadian to call if two fa- even relatively famous people are together. It's royal. <laughs> well, you know, we all need our tiaras. Uh, mine's over there. Oh, for I got sure. a tiara. <laughs> for sure. Uh, what are you up to now, Denise, apart from a million things? I know you, you've got so many causes as well. I mean, not even music related. And, no more yoga pictures because uh, it just makes me feel very insecure. You look amazing in oh, the pictures oh, that you post. You. Well, you guys do too. It's all, it, Yeah, fantastic. Well, we have lighting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I have my we little have ray light up there, you know. Well, you know, and it's important. I always remember that great quote from David Lee Roth where he said, all the world's a stage and I demand better lighting. And he, <laughs> that is true. I'm Well, I'm retired. I'm a pensioner. I'm using my powers for good, I hope. I'm on a, a number of nonprofit boards, War Child Canada and Soul Pepper and Music Counts with the Junos and just came off the Gigi board. 
which was all very difficult during COVID, obviously, like keeping the Governor General's Performing Arts uh, Award. And they still asked me to come do their, I just came off that one. So they asked me to do their interviews, which I love doing. And takes you right back, eh? It does. It does. It, yeah, it's fun. You know, we were talking about Catherine O'Hara earlier. She got a, she got her GG and because it was COVID, we had to do them all outside and we were up at Lake Muskoka or whatever. And I don't know, the, the wind gusts were up to 50 kilometers an hour and we'd stop and start doing these questions and her hair was all over the place. And it was just <laughs> her hair and makeup people had come out of, she must've had 172 bobby pins in the back of her head. And at one point I just said, wow, we're just not in Kansas anymore. And she was like, Dorothy, and just went off on this whole Wizard of Oz thing. I love her so much. She's such a talent. It's, we're going to have to wrap up in, in just a sec. But I, I loved one of, your, one of your quotes, which was, uh, well, it's hardly famous, but I, I, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. So now you're in your 60s, you're retired. Have you got it all figured out? Like, is, is there? <laughs> no. Do any of us really? <laughs> God, no, 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 you know what? But I think that again, you can, you can just try and remain true to whoever you are in there. And, you know, sometimes I just, I don't want to go to yet another board meeting, but I'm always happy at the end of it. Even yoga, I don't ever want to go to yoga, but I'm always really happy on the way home when I, when I've done it. I feel the same way. Exactly. No one ever says I shouldn't have done that yoga class. I feel awful. <laughs> exactly. You never regret a swim or a yoga class. No, it's true. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, life is big still. And, um, and yeah, if you can make a contribution and still feel like you're making a contribution, that's a gift. Just a gift. You get way back more than you put in for sure. Denise, such a pleasure to talk to you. It was so great seeing you both. And Wendy, you're in the County and Maureen, where are you? I'm in Toronto. Oh, okay. I'm, in, I'm hype. Yeah, I'm in the library. <laughs> we should do like a little thing where you take people take snapshots of their bookshelf, and then you have to try and decide whose bookshelf it is and make it a comp. Uh, then you should judge them accordingly. You know how people would judge you from your record collections? Like they come over and go through your records and decide whether you were cool or not. Well, I feel that way about the books. I think my, totally. That's a. I know. Yeah, and absolutely. you still have a lot. I got to get some books. Got to get some. I know you got, no, you have books, Wendy. You have a ton of books. She does, just not in that it's bedroom. Probably so. your biggest problem. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've got to hide it. Yeah, I told her off the beginning, don't have a bed in the background. It's not professional unless you're a true woman of ill repute. <laughs> oh, my God. No, I'm hiding it, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm inexpensive, so. Aren't we all? <laughs> Denise, it's been lovely. Uh, it's taken oh, us months to sort of organize a time, but it's just so. so it was absolutely worth yeah, it. It's one of the absolutely reasons why it. we do this podcast is that we get to talk to interesting people. So, uh, yeah. Oh, that's the only reason because it's not the money, <laughs> I can tell you that. Oh, there you go. Yeah. It must be the hair and makeup trailer oh, and yeah. the craft yeah. services. Yeah, yeah. No, it was an absolute delight. And, uh, you know, I wish both of you massive continued success. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, we just keep powering on, huh? Yep. yep. Rock and roll, yep. man. Rock and roll. Okay, rock and roll. <laughs> and thank you for reading the book, Wendy. Oh, my God, that ponderous tome. Well, I skipped a couple of pages, but it's pretty good. It's, it's pretty good. It, yeah, it was, we it also was used it like, as a boat anchor. <laughs> oh, well, that's a very good thing to do. Yeah, a little bit <laughs> soggy, I bet, now. <laughs> well, you guys, have a great day. 
Love, lovely bye. to see you. Yeah, lovely to see you. Bye. Bye. Well, I'd like to say she's lovely, but I think I've said that before, but she's lovely. We say that all the time. She's lovely. There are very few people that we have not said they are lovely. I can think of a couple, but most of them are. I want to tell you, um, the first time I met Denise, I was invited uh, to join the Much Music crew in their box at what was Maple Leaf Gardens to watch a show that I think was part of the Live Aid thing. It was with Peter Gabriel and Tracy Chapman, and it was an all-star lineup. And uh, I was at, at CKFM at the time, which is now Virgin, and went and joined them. And Denise and I were sitting next to each other, and we were talking, and she said, you know you should come over to us. And I remember thinking I could never in a million years be cool enough to join this group. Um, it was Kim Clark Champness, I think Terry David Mulligan, you know, all those guys, but especially Denise. And now I look back and go, what the hell was the matter with me? I would have loved, she was the main reason. I just thought she was the, the smartest, smartest girl in school. And, um, and I think I'm right. Well, we've interviewed Jeannie Becker, but um, uh, Denise Nolan's probably my favorite of, of, of that gang. And I, I wanted to make a confession. I'm glad I'm just making it to you and not to her, but I was like, and no one's listening. So go ahead. No one's listening. So I'll go ahead. Um, when I was at, at Chum, when I was in high school, music videos, everyone was all excited about music videos and, and they, she ended up working for a station for city and much music and whatever that sort of glorified it. It, it, it made the most out of music videos. And I was like, I don't know who, who would watch that. <laughs> that's, yeah, you know. that's you with your finger on the pulse of pop culture all the time. Yes. <laughs> yes. I was such a loser and it became such a huge, huge deal. And she was she was a, a big part of that. And I sort of feel like that's why I enjoyed her book, all 37,000 pages of it. <laughs> uh, that's why I enjoyed her book so much was it was it was like reading like we've sort of been in each other's periphery for all. Well, uh, like you. Uh, for for all of these years, and uh, but never really gotten to know her. So yeah, she's she's quite a character, and yeah, she's inspirational too. Because uh, yeah, so successful and yet still truly, you know, kind. She's a kind person, and 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 super involved and funny. Great storyteller. The Leonard Cohen thing gave me goosebumps. Good guest. She was lovely, and it's lovely to see. Lovely, you. lovely. <laughs> Bye. Women of Ill Repute was written and produced by Maureen Holloway and Wendy Mesley with the help from the team at the Sound Off Media Company and producer Yet Belgraver. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. 
wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.